Iorana. Welcome, this is Pacific Waves. I'm Moira Tuila Epa Taylor. Coming up, the UN Climate Summit in Dubai has opened with a deal to hand out money to countries hit by disasters linked to global warming. Also, we cannot continue uh, on this track. It's catastrophic to uh, small island states or big ocean states like Palau and, and many of the Pacific Islands. Palau's president is already garnering support from Pacific leaders to commit to sustainable ocean management. And later... Well, this is the largest Games ever. We've had over 5,000 athletes. The Pacific Games in Solomon Islands has now been officially announced as the largest ever in the history of the regional tournament. The UN Climate Change Summit in Dubai has opened with a deal to hand out money to countries hit by disasters linked to global warming. The first payments will be made from a fund known as Loss and Damage, following a 30-year campaign by poorer governments. The head of COP28, Sultan Ahmed Al-Jabur, says the deal sends a positive signal of momentum that we have been able to achieve such significant milestone in the first day of this COP is unprecedented. However, nations vulnerable to the climate crisis are sounding caution over the launch of the long-awaited global fund. The loss and damage fund would see nations contribute funds in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Over 400 million US dollars has been pledged by the EU Germany, UK, US and Japan. But in a statement from the 39-country alliance of small island nations, there was a warning that it needs to be adequately financed to start alleviating the burden borne by vulnerable communities. And regional coordinator for the Pacific Islands Climate Network, Lavetana Langiseru, believes a lot more money is needed to help vulnerable countries rebuild social and physical infrastructure from climate-induced disasters. The pledges are currently insufficient. The level of capitalization beyond this initial finance should move to the billion. I think... These concerns around the replenishment of the fund. Mr. Seru, who is in Dubai, also believes the loss and damage fund, which the Pacific and other climate vulnerable countries have been calling for for the last three decades, was not set up how he had hoped. He says there has been compromises in the agreement, but it was still a step in the right direction. It's not what we had hoped for in terms of what the package is. It's not a a package that we are happy about. There's definitely been compromises. Meanwhile, Greenpeace's head of Pacific, Shiva Gaundan, says that the new fund is a vital first step towards ensuring communities facing climate harm get the support they desperately need. Mr Gaundan says finance must come from those most responsible for creating the climate crisis, the most polluting nations, including Australia, as well as the fossil fuel industry. 
He says as the third largest fossil fuel exporter in the world and a major contributor to global emissions, the Australian government has a responsibility to step up and make significant contributions to the loss and damage fund. Palau's president is already garnering support from Pacific leaders to commit to sustainable ocean management. Palau's Blue Prosperity Funding Plan has been established with the hope of raising anywhere from half a billion to a billion dollars through bilateral arrangements and philanthropy. President Surungal Whips Jr. said he met with various groups and leaders while in Rarotonga at the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Summit and encouraged them to get on board. He spoke with Lydia Lewis from Dubai, who started off by asking him about his COP28 priorities. I'm excited about COP. COP is really important because we all see the reports. The Global Stock Tech says we're way behind. At our current trajectory, you're going to be at three degrees. That's way above 1.5, which we all committed to in uh, 2015 at uh, in Paris. We need to raise our ambitions, and we need to cut uh, emissions by 42 percent. Uh, you know, we need to we need the world to be serious about this. Uh, we cannot continue uh, on this track. It's catastrophic to uh, small island states or big ocean states like Palau and and many of the uh, Pacific Islands. And uh, we need to uh, call for action. Uh, we, need, we, need, we need the world, uh, everyone, to take responsibility and to act. Uh, the time is now. So, Are you disappointed that the President of the United States will not be attending? What signal does that send to Pacific nations? <clears throat> you know, this is an important COP. Um, they're saying most important since... Uh, uh, Paris, and uh, the United States is the world's largest emitter, uh, and has been for years. Uh, needs to be active. It needs to show leadership, and of course, uh, uh, not having Biden here uh, definitely uh, weakens, uh, at least, uh, our, or gives us um, concern about our hope for the future. It's so important that world leaders come together. And uh, we were, we definitely had wished that uh, Biden will be here, but I know he's sending his top representatives, and and I know that he's committed uh, to climate change. His policies have pushed for that, and I, I don't think this in any way it takes away from the U- U- U.S.'s goal uh, to promote uh, um, uh, climate change policies. Uh, but of course, having him in person is 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 a stronger statement. But uh, what's more important is is the actions that his government is taking. And I, and I believe that the U.S. has come a long ways and continues uh, its leadership position in advocating for uh, strong policies uh, to combat climate change. So, Is advocating, though, for strong policies enough? Well, I mean, the U.S. has put up money. Uh, they need to put more, but so does China and so does India and so does all these other big emitters of the world. I think... You know, the focus is always on the U.S., but there's Australia, there's uh, China, there's India, there's the EU. I mean, everybody's got to step it up. And uh, uh, the U.S. is a leader and an important leader, and we need to get the rest of the world to also act accordingly. 
And in terms of Blue Prosperity, um, has there been any action on that? Uh, has anybody signed it? I, I understand from our last, the last time we spoke, you handed Pacific Leaders documents in Rarotonga. So when we were in uh, Rarotonga, uh, we were able to get a commitment from Pacific Leaders. So that was why it was reflected in the communique, their support of the Blue Unlocking Blue Pacific Prosperity. Uh, we all agreed that the COP would be the great opportunity to demonstrate to the world our commitment to protecting managing them because, as you know, they're the largest uh, carbon sink. And so, so critical in our um, uh, fight for climate change. And the uh, plan is on December 3rd, there will be uh, an event. So we launch and then on December 5th, Pacific leaders will sign. Now, there are a lot of uh, presidents and heads of state that weren't able to make it partly because of uh, other commitments and, of course, conflict in the Middle East. However, we've gotten assurances that their representatives that will be here at least can uh, sign on their behalf. So we don't know if all, every country will sign, but we know that a, a vast majority of the PIF countries will at least commit at this COP. So we're excited about that and, and uh, uh, to partner with our partners here, especially philanthropy and governments uh, in this uh, effort. So. The New Zealand government intends to reopen New Zealand waters to oil and gas exploration, despite the United Nations saying the world is on track to produce around 110% more fossil fuels in 2030. What is your message to the new New Zealand government? Uh, all I can say is what a backward uh, position that, a, that a, an island that is part of the Pacific Island Forum that uh, understands, should understand uh, the challenges that we're facing now going backwards on their commitments. Uh, New Zealand, Pacific Island, and a member of the forum should take a leadership role and should be active in doing all they can to transition away from fossil fuels. That's what they should be working on. Uh, they shouldn't be going out and uh, exploring more gas and oil. Palau has the same issues. We, we have oil and gas in our waters. Palau has been active and said, uh, if we're going to be a leader and we're, we're going to commit, then we need to do our part. We cannot just talk about islands going under but not do our part. So Palau has not uh, uh, you know, gone after oil and gas explorations. We have a ban on deep sea mining, a ban on all those things because we're committed uh, to the protection of our ocean. So it is very disturbing uh, that New Zealand, uh, as a Pacific island, that uh, – as part of the Pacific family, would take such a drastic action. This week, the Papua New Guinea Minister of Bougainville Affairs, Manase Makimba, stressed in a parliamentary statement that the Bougainville referendum results are non-binding and it's for national parliament to determine the region's future political status. In 2019, Bougainvillians voted resoundingly in a referendum for independence. The Bougainville minister heading the independence implementation mission, Ezekiel Marsat, is disputing that the referendum was a non-binding exercise. He spoke with Don Wiseman. Very strong statements made this week in Parliament by the Minister for Bougainville Affairs, Manasa Makiba, and I think, to be fair, you're not happy with what he had to say. 
I think you're being polite by saying I'm, I'm unhappy. I'm, I'm very angry that this uh, narrative continues to be pushed down the road, a narrative where a constitutionally guaranteed referendum is now assumed that uh, doesn't have any uh, go forward, and I think it's the wrong narrative. For the life of me, I can't see how a constitutional guaranteed referendum would have no practical effect in the end. It's been called a non-binding referendum since before the referendum was held. That It's a phrase, or it's a term that's been around for a while. Are you suggesting it actually shouldn't be there? Yeah, well, I... Uh I never had anything to do with the activities prior to uh, the referendum being conducted. But I remember there are some commentaries even on the uh, referendum commission about this issue being non-binding. And I think that was wrong. And my views are still true to this day that there is nothing in any legislation nor the peace agreement that the referendum result would be non-binding. Now, I think it's important also, Don, to remember that when we negotiated the peace agreement, the various referendums that are conducted around the world were being looked at. And we were looking at... uh, referendums like have effect, immediate effect, and you also have referendums that are delayed until certain other conditions are met. And as far as I remember, those were the sort of things we were looking at and trying to avoid a referendum where it would be effective upon the results being declared. Rather, it was decided that the two governments would work on consulting and making sure that the transition to independence would be as smooth as possible. And that's where the background is. And suddenly this non-binding issue comes in because the uh, referendum results are not effective on the date of the declaration. It is therefore assumed that it is non-binding and that's not correct. As as far as you're concerned, the role of Parliament then is because it was such an overwhelming vote for independence by Bougainvillians, 97.7%, your view is that when Parliament looks at it, it's a matter of them rubber stamping it, independence being guaranteed from that point. I would avoid using the word rubber stamp. I I think Parliament plays a critical role, but given the peace agreement and given how the current legislation stands, yes, the matter goes before Parliament for endorsement. Now, I remind listeners, the greatest unknown in the peace agreement and the legislation was the referendum result, not the ratification. That's procedural. The greatest unknown, and I've, I've made these commentaries to uh, both the UN uh, agencies, and I've made that commentary to the signatories of the Bougainville Peace Agreement, that everybody's been sitting around waiting for this, acting like they're neutral until ratification. And it's not. That's wrong. They should come in now and play their part as soon as the referendum results came out. Yes. Now everybody's sitting around saying, oh, we'll wait for what comes out from ratification process. No, that's wrong. You should come in now because the referendum result is already being determined. All right. Now, uh, Father Dumarinu asked Parliament or raised the question of a political impasse between Bougainville and the Port Moresby government. The minister, Mr. Makiba, denied that there was any political impasse. What's your view? Is there one? We broke off talk. We broke off official talks a couple of months ago because we couldn't agree on the uh, contents of the uh, sessional order. Uh, now, as you remember, the uh, the joint supervisory body 
had made some resolutions. And those resolutions were, amongst other things, that myself and Minister Makiba would work on the contents of the uh, sessional order. And in the event that we would not have any meetings of the mind, the matter would be then referred to a moderator. We broke off after we couldn't agree on the contents of the uh, sessional order. And the president has since written to the prime minister like months ago. I'm talking June, July. And the president has written to the prime minister seeking an urgent JSP to now determine the issue of the moderator. We have not received one response, mm. not from the prime minister yeah. and not from the uh, minister. Now, having said yes. that, uh, Don, that has not stopped my discussions with minister. I can say that we are on good talking terms. Despite the impasse, we continue to say on our part, on Bougainville's part, that we are going to leave this independent and therefore we shouldn't be affected or even if there's an impasse, we always keep the doors open. You are listening to Pacific Waves. The Pacific Games in Solomon Islands has now been officially announced as the largest ever in the history of the regional tournament. Over 5,000 athletes, officials and participants from 24 countries have been competing in 24 sports in and around the capital Honiara. The chief executive of the Games Organising Committee, Peter Stewart, commended the people of Solomon Islands for pulling off an extraordinary event that welcomed people from all over the Pacific. He spoke to Koroi Hawkins at the National Stadium in Honiara ahead of the opening ceremony. Now look, I think we're very happy with the outcome. Uh, at the start of the Games, uh, always in a brand new city that hasn't run an event like this, we're always wary about what may or may not happen, but I think the team have rallied around beautifully, the people of Solomon Islands have rallied behind the event, and we have delivered a wonderful event. That's really the sense I've been getting from talking to the athletes and even, even locals um, about how ordinary Solomon Islanders have really embraced this, the volunteers, the people helping out, going out of their way to make the visitors feel welcome. How do you, I don't know, how do you get that kind of buy-in? Look, I think it's new for everybody, but the level of excitement was tremendous over the last couple of years as the venues have been built. People were driving past construction sites and then the the stadia started to peek its head over the construction fence. People started to get excited when the main stadium had the sails going on for the roof and then eventually the construction fences came down and people could look into the stadia as they drove past and that really got everybody's excitement going. So over the last couple of years it's been building, building, building and then of course all the teams arrive and you have athletes walking up and down the street with their accreditations on, teams in their uniforms coming so everyone's been incredibly excited by all of that. With any big event like this obviously there will be challenges what would have been the main ones uh, for this event? Well I think probably the biggest challenge is that the resources here in Honiara compared to a lot of the other bigger cities in the Pacific are less so we've had to do a lot of planning to make sure that our contractors and our suppliers had in what they needed to have in place uh, which everybody has done so we've got a, a huge team, over 6,000 people made up of staff, full-time staff working, uh, nearly 3,000 volunteers, community groups helping out, 
suppliers and contractors, the police, all of SIG, the Solomon Island government, all of the various departments, all pulling together to deliver this extraordinary event. I'm sadly, because of flights, not going to be here for the closing ceremony. Preview, sneak peek, what, what, what do we have coming for us? Uh, well, uh, there's not a lot that I can tell you without shooting you afterwards, but uh, obviously the closing ceremony is a little bit different to the opening ceremony. The closing ceremony is very much a celebration of what's happened in the Games, and it gives an opportunity for the public to be able to recognise not only the athletes, but also the volunteers uh, and the workforce who have been delivering the Games, so they are all involved in some way. There are some cultural performances, and then of course there's a hand over to Tahiti who are hosting the next games so they have a little segment we will be awarding the male and female athlete of the games so uh, all of those are regular things that happen in the games and we will lower the flag the Pacific Games Council flag it will be handed over to Tahiti and, and all of the athletes and the people of the Pacific will be welcomed to join us all in four years time in Tahiti be honest, did you think it would be this much of a success? It's obviously, from everyone I've talked to, I've been really enjoying being at this thing. Well, you always hope that that's going to be the case, but you don't know what can befall. I mean, there are lots of variables, and, uh, you know, one is the weather. I mean, it has been unbelievably uh, kind to us, the, the weather. Uh, perhaps four or five days before the opening ceremony, we had a huge downpour here in Honiara. We had some significant floods around some of our venues. Now, uh, if that had happened in the middle of the Games, we would have continued on, but it would have dampened the... Uh, the feelings of spectators and athletes alike. But throughout the Games, we've had fantastic weather and it looks like it's going to hold, fingers crossed, all the way through to the closing ceremony. So those are the things that makes it easy for us to deliver a great Games when things like that work in our favour. Any statistics yet on attendance and um, participation in the Games? Yeah, well, this is the largest Games ever. We've had over 5,000 athletes. Samoa was the biggest Games before us, but it was announced the other day uh, that we have now got the largest Games, the largest Pacific Games that have ever been held. So that's a great accomplishment for, for us here in Solomon Islands to have been able to deliver that. Uh, so... From that point of view, amazing. Staggering stats abound in a games like this. So we, we deliver nearly 20,000 meals every day. We have 350 buses and trucks and cars running around on the roads every day. It's just a huge undertaking uh, that involves an enormous team to be able to deliver it. Looking to the future, being able to pull something off like this, what does this do for Solomon Islands in terms of a viable venue for future events? Well, the long-term benefits of these sorts of projects are we've built the capacity of the workforce, so there are people now who know how to do these sorts of events. We've built the capacity of businesses, so there's a whole range of businesses who are now able to cope with the demands of events such as this. We have incredible infrastructure improvements, so not only the stadia that was used for the, for the event, but also the roads, the airport, even things that people don't see like... The internet's a lot better <laughs> than when I was last year. Exactly. All of those things have had to improve their standard of delivery to be able to meet the requirements of the game. So now what Solomon Islands is able to do is go out into the world and say, bring your events here, whether it be sporting events, whether it be religious events, whether it be business events, 
we've got the venues and the infrastructure to be able to support your event. Any message for the people of Solomon Islands who might hear this before or during or after the closing ceremony in terms of what, what, what you've pulled off here? Well, I think it's just a fantastic thank you to everybody in Solomon Islands for the way that everybody has banded together to deliver a, a wonderful event that has welcomed the whole Pacific. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We are also on Apple, Spotify and iHeart Radio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, Nana Mia Ma.